Welcome back. We're glad to have you. We've missed you for the most part. Just kidding. Kind of. Glad you're here. Uh, what a joy it is to uh, start a new year, take a look at God's Word. We jumped back into Luke last week, and here we are again, just picking right up where we left off from last week. And even at the end of last year, Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 17 is what we're going to take a look at this morning. Uh, Luke 7, 1 to 17. I'm not sure what page that on. I have not gotten in the habit of writing that down. So hello, Simona. It's good to have you back. We've missed you. Yes, she was a college student that left us in May. So no special favoritism kind of thing going on there. But uh, anyway, page 63. Page 63. Wait, wait, that's 863. I'm going to say that's not right. 863. Let's go to God and see what his word has for us. Verse 1, chapter 7. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier and the bears stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all and they glorified God, saying a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Now I want you to notice a couple words in that passage that we just read. Look at verse 9, that word marvel. And then that word in verse 13, compassion. Now I don't know about you, but the stories that I've seen, you know, on TV and the like about Jesus, they very often picture a Jesus that is emotionally unengaged, a kind of two-dimensional robot of sorts. And yet here in this passage, what we find is quite the opposite. We see somebody, we see Jesus, the Jesus that is a three-dimensional, emotionally engaged man, God-man. So I think that's important that we understand that, the real Jesus, not the Hollywood Jesus, so that we would understand that when we're going through pain, when we're going through difficulty, when we're going through loss in the midst of this broken world, we will know that the Jesus of whom we worship is engaged in the midst of this. He's not some sort of robot. 
And so all of us in this room have either experienced loss, pain, or difficulty, or you will experience it in the coming year or the years that follow. And it's good for us to look into the face of Christ and see that the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the King of the kingdom, He is one that marvels at faith amidst loss. He's the one that has compassion amidst people that are going through loss. That's critical for us to see as we see that this Jesus is worthy of a marvelous trust. Now we're coming off of Jesus' sermon on the plain. That's chapter 6, the latter half of chapter 6. Where if you recall, the message of that sermon, of the sermon on the plain, was blessed are those who are poor, blessed are those who weep, blessed are those who hunger, blessed are those who suffer as a result of following Jesus. They're the blessed ones. The good life to them. Woe to those, Jesus said, that are rich, that laugh, that are full, that are well thought of by all. Jesus is showing us there that his kingdom is built on the backs of people that know their need. And instead of seeking to fill themselves now in worldly joy, they instead take the pain and are willing to walk with Jesus and hope in him and find life and eternity in him. Therefore, they are then empowered to do the impossible, to love their enemies. That's what we saw the last uh, couple weeks. But in particular, you'll notice the end of the sermon there at chapter six, verses 46 to 49 where Jesus says there's basically two kinds of people, two kinds of people, those whose lives are built on the rock of Christ and those that aren't. And Jesus said in that passage there that uh, the, the ones that are built on the rock of Christ Jesus, their life is dug down deep. They're hoping in Christ, seeking to be full in him. When life comes at them fast, when streams hit their life, they stand up. They don't get blown away. As opposed to those whose lives are not built upon the rock of Christ, What happens is life kind of comes at them and it exposes the fact that their houses are built upon sand, not on the rock of Christ. And so then Luke then turns in chapter 7 to illustrations of that sermon. That's what's going on here. From chapter 7 down even into chapter 8, what Luke is doing is he's intentionally placing these stories right next to that sermon so as to illustrate the blessed ones. The blessed one. So you'll see in this first passage, verses 1 to 10, the centurion that is losing his beloved servant that has faith. In verses 11 to 17, we have the widowed woman who's losing her only son, who has lost her only son. After that, in the coming weeks, you'll see John the baptizer that was suffering for the sake of Christ, just as Jesus said. And then in after her, we see a sinful woman that's weeping for her sin. Jesus said again, blessed are those who weep, for they will laugh. We have stories of all of these. And so this man that we and this woman that we look at today in our passage, each of them uh, will get that joy of satisfaction, of healing in the now, in the now. Something most of us will not experience. But these two do, the centurion and the widow woman do. And these two do get satisfaction, get laughter, healing now because Jesus has come to earth to teach us and to show us what his kingdom is like. So these miracles are not understood to be normative for us, but instead they are meant to be coupled with the teaching of Christ regarding the kingdom of heaven. In other words, these miracles are meant to illustrate his kingdom. So these miracles are like previews of a movie that is going to be a really good movie upon Christ's return. That's what these miracles are intended to be doing. These miracles are sort of like appetizers that we're sort of feasting upon that will lead us to a great meal upon the return of Christ where we get to a feast with him. 
these miracles are like previews, little peepholes into previews into the consummated kingdom of heaven when they when Jesus returns. And so they are pictures. The miracles are pictures of redemption and restoration out in front of time, which is why Jesus is again administering these miracles. And that's why the Lord has preserved them for us in his word, so that we would trust and treasure Christ in our hearts, bear good fruit, knowing that while we may suffer now, a day is going to come as it did for the centurion and his servant, as it did for the widow and her son. A day is going to come, that is, when we will all be healed and made right, restored. That's why these stories, these miracles are here. That's what they're trying to do, to teach us. Worthy is Christ of our trust. So let's dive down deep, look a little more carefully at these two stories. In the first story, we see the Lord Jesus marveling at the faith of the centurion. And this gives us a glimpse of what it looks like to believe, to have faith, to trust Christ when someone we love in particular is slipping away from us. So it teaches us, this passage, Judge, what it means to have faith, but a derivative of that is how is it we have faith when someone we love and treasure and trust and enjoy is slipping away from us. So since this man is a centurion, we know him to be a Gentile. That means a non-Jew. He has a servant that was highly valued. That could be translated precious. So this is a servant that is precious to him. And we see in verse 2 that he's about to die. He's at the point of death. So the centurion, he's heard about Jesus. He knows Jesus has a reputation for healing people. So he sends some Jewish elders to Jesus to ask him to heal his servant. Now look at verse 4. This is critical to see. I want you to notice what the elders say. If you're into circling your Bibles and pointing things out as I am, you're going to want to point this out there in verse 4. They plead, the elders plead with Jesus saying these three words. This is the three words to circle. He is worthy, the centurion. He is worthy to have you do this for him. He's worthy to have you heal his servant because he wants you to. He's worthy because, because let me give you two reasons, Jesus. Because one, he loves our nation. He's a Gentile, but he loves us. He loves our nation. And two, you know that really nice synagogue downtown? Man, he built that thing. So he's worthy to have you do this thing that he wants you to do. And this, friends, is how most people think Christianity works. You perform good enough. You plead those good works. Then you pray to Jesus that he will heal you or do something you ask. Even give you eternal life because of those good deeds. And in this case, the centurion, the Jewish elders are pleading. The centurion, well, he loved the Jewish people. He even built that fancy synagogue. Today we might say, well, this man, he, or this woman, he, he loved Christians. You know, he, he, he built that really nice thing for that, that, uh, that woman that needed it. And so the thinking is Jesus is sort of like a boss or a kind of demanding parent that if we work hard enough, we can earn his grace. We can earn his love. We can earn his power to then do the thing that we want him to do. So we can do religious stuff like praying a bunch or giving some money in the plate. This is what prosperity gospel teachers, this is how they enslave their people. You know, just give them some things, make them do some stuff, then sort of cash it in when they need it. Cash in those grace credits that they've earned. We think that we're able to, in some ways, manipulate God by those good deeds, those stated confessions. But friends, that is not the gospel. That's religion. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That system may describe every single religion on planet Earth, but it does not describe Christianity. 
I realize that a lot of people think that that's what Christianity is, but it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has never been in debt to us, nor will he ever be. Isaiah 64, 6 says, even our, all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before him. And so these Jewish leaders reveal they don't understand the sermon that he just delivered, if they were there to hear it. They don't understand the scriptures that they had been taught. They don't understand grace, love, power to heal is never earned because you can't earn grace. Grace, by definition, is undeserved. But regardless, Jesus is going to continue on with these dudes towards the centurion's house. And in verse six, we see that Jesus is not far off from that house when apparently the centurion hears that Jesus is on his way. And so the centurion sends another waves of another wave of folks to intercept Jesus on their way to him. And here is his message. Look at verse six. Lord, do not trouble yourself. Note the contrast. For I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. And then from there, he shows that the centurion shows that he understands authority, that Jesus is one in authority because he gives the example. I'm one in authority. I say this dude, go do that. And he does it. This dude, don't do that. He doesn't do it. All these. I just say stuff and they do it. So in the same way, Jesus, just say the word. And you can heal my servant because you're one in authority. I can imagine this moment. You know, he's being intercepted, Jesus is. There's a crowd around him. These, this little group of people have come up to intercept him on the way. Jesus hears this. And there in verse 9, after hearing this, it says that Jesus marvels. In my mind, I've got this picture in my mind of Jesus sort of hearing this and him just sort of looking up to a, in the sky with a smile on his face. Wow. This man understands. This man believes. And he even goes on, he turns around there to all these other Jews that are with him, verse 9, and he says, not even in Israel have I found faith like this. So three things there. Three things that cause Jesus to marvel. Three things that help us understand what it means to have faith. Three things we can learn from about what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. Three things we can understand when loved ones in our life are slipping away from us. The first thing is, Jesus has us has just explained that the blessed ones are the ones who are poor. Theirs is the kingdom. And we said that did touch on material poverty. But remember, we said it went deeper than that. It touched on what we also learned in that other sermon, Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those that are poor in spirit. And here, the centurion gets that, even though he is likely wealthy. He is poor in spirit. Here we see what that looks like, as opposed to those Jewish leaders who were trying to appeal to his worthiness, to his wealth of spirit. The centurion himself did not. He did quite the opposite. He said, I am not worthy. So that's the other one to circle. I just I, in my Bible, I, I circled. He is worthy. And though I am not worthy and just connected the two. The centurion understands he's ner- he's earned nothing from Jesus. Even though most everyone agreed that he had been a nice guy, done some nice things, even for God's people, he understood he was not worthy. And the second thing that we see that we can learn from is this uh, this centurion understood who Jesus was and therefore what he was able to do. So you look at that uh, verse, verse six, notice how he refers to Jesus. What does he call him? He calls him the Lord. The Lord. 
And he and then he uses that example of authority. He understands this is the Lord and he has authority. And so then we see that he understands Jesus is one under authority, namely that all he has to do again is say a word and it would happen. So this man, this centurion understood that because Jesus is the Lord, he had authority and therefore he didn't need to even come to his home to do this since he was unworthy. He just needed to save a word and his servant would be healed. And then there's a third thing, third reason we can learn from. Third reason why Jesus marveled at this man's face was the fact that this man was a Gentile, a non-Jew. A man outside the people of whom God had revealed himself to in a special way. Jesus says, in essence, I can't even find faith like this amongst the people that should know better. So these three things combine to lead Jesus to then heal the servant. Now you'll notice there in verse 10, it doesn't even appear as though he went to the house. I love that. Yeah, you know, he's right. Healed. And they went home and found him healed. Such a beautiful truth. So this man found his servant healed, to be clear, not because the centurion made himself worthy. You've got to get clear on that, guys. His servant was healed not because he made himself worthy, not because a servant made himself worthy, not because the centurion made himself worthy. Quite the opposite. Jesus healed the centurion's servant because the centurion pleaded for grace through faith in Christ alone. That's why he was healed. The man knew that he deserved nothing. He trusted in the one that deserved everything. He believed that he was able to speak a word and it could be done. And guys, that's what faith is. That's what faith is. Faith is the realization of our own unworthiness combined with wholehearted trust in him who is worthy to do all things for his glory by just speaking a word. Faith is not manipulating God with our religion. Faith is pleading the grace of God to act in the Son of God to bring glory to God. Faith is wholehearted trust in the person and the work of Christ alone. That's what faith is. And beloved, when you slow down and think about it, look at this passage. The centurion's an awful lot like us, isn't he? Aren't we in the same position as he is? Think about it. We are not Jews, most of us, if not all of us in the room. We're not Jews, we're all Gentiles. And as it was with a centurion, Jesus was not, Jesus is not physically in our presence now. So it was with him. And like the centurion, none of us is worthy to have Jesus comes to our home to do anything for us. So just because we've done a bunch of good things doesn't matter. We are all unworthy of God's love, God's attention, God's power. Jesus owes us nothing, much less a miracle, much less everlasting life and forgiveness. And so while we are in the midst of hardness of life, while we may have loved ones that are slipping away from us, while we have dreams maybe that are slipping away from us, good things slipping away from us, while we grieve, while we mourn loss, while we lament, will Jesus marvel at our faith? Will we believe He is the Lord? Be able to break into our darkened world, give us hope, give us peace with just a word, will He find faith in us. See, the reality is Jesus, friends, is on his way towards us. That's another way in which we are like that centurion. Jesus is on his way to us. Either in his second coming or in our imminent deaths. Will we believe that Jesus owes us something when we meet him? 
Well, we believe that we are worthy to have him forgive us, cleanse us, heal us, give us life everlasting because of somehow we've manipulated him in some way? Or will we understand that we are unworthy of anything? Will we appeal to his grace and lordship? Will we appeal to who he is and what he is able to do? Will we not plead our works, but his work? Will we trust not our own efforts, but the Lord's grace to just say a word to save us or save the ones that we are losing? I pray that we will. Beloved, this life is hard. It is fraught with pain and difficulty. Tragedy and loss. And the only way we can find stability to weather this weary world is by looking to the rod and staff of King Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. As he leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, he will eventually get us to that green grass. He's the one that we hope in. He's the one we trust to care for us. But the truth is, friends, he may not heal our cancer or the sickness of a loved one in the now. But for all who are in Christ, he will in the end heal us and restore us just as he promised to do. Because remember, guys, remember, these stories are meant to be previews or of coming attractions, illustrations of the kingdom. Uh, Just about a week, about a week and a half ago. Uh, the wife of the great pastor preacher Tony Evans died. And one of her sons spoke at his mom's funeral. Maybe some of you saw this. He said something that speaks right into this mentality. He was asking the Lord when, her, when his mom was kind of slipping away, just like the servant. He was asking the Lord to heal his mom. He said the spirit sort of testified to his spirit and said to him, just because... I don't answer your prayer in your way doesn't mean I'm not answering it anyway. And he said the Lord just sort of convicted him that victory had always belonged to his mom. Because victory of Christ was in her by grace through her faith in Christ. In other words, he said he then testified. He said that the Lord sort of said to his spirit, there was always only two answers to his prayer of healing for his mom. Either she would be healed or she would be healed. Either she would have life or she would have life. Either she would be with family or she would be with family. In other words, right? No matter what, as long as she's in Christ, since Christ has defeated sin and death, no matter what, whether she's healed now or she's healed later, either way, in the new heavens and new earth, she has victory because Christ has overcome sin and death in the resurrection. And so no matter what, the Lord was already answering his uh, prayer and it relates to his mom. She had already won because like that centurion, Tony Evans' wife trusted Jesus. She had hope in that. And I play, plead that it will be the same with us all, that we will believe as the centurion does. That we will believe that while you may be outside the storyline of Scripture, you can be written in. Believe, you can believe that he's coming, that he's on his way. Believe that you are unworthy, unworthy of anything. Believe that Jesus, though, is worthy of everything. Believe that by his word, life can come because he is the Lord and because he's overcome it in the cross and in the resurrection. And no, friend, no, he may not heal you. He may not heal your loved one like he did the centurion servant in the now. But if your hope is in the same Jesus, then Jesus marvels at that faith. And your faith then is not in vain. 
Right in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that if Christ has not been raised from the grave, our faith is in vain. It's useless. It's pitiable. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if, if, Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all men to be most pitied. But then he goes on so beautifully to say that Christ has been resurrected from the grave. And then he goes on to say, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That is, we shall not all die. But we uh, but we all shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed for this imperishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on the immortality when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality then shall come to pass the saying that is written death where is your sting. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, he says, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor, your faith is not in vain. Since in the cross and in the resurrection, Christ has defeated sin and death for all that trust him. We can have confidence that our faith is not in vain. And so though we wither, And those we love may wither in front of us. We have already won. And soon enough, we will all triumph over sin, sickness and death and take on resurrection bodies on a resurrected earth, worshiping and loving a resurrected savior. Which is exactly where the story goes next. See it down there in verse 11. We move here from Jesus marveling at the faith of a Gentile to heal the sick to his having compassion on a widowed woman who mourns the loss of her only son. In this first story that we just looked at, we see the Lord heal one who was on the brink of death. But in this second story, we see the Lord actually resurrect the dead. And again, this story is meant to illustrate Jesus' sermon On the plain, don't lose sight of that. Showing us those who weep and hope in Christ, though they may weep today, tomorrow they will laugh. Take a look. Verse 11, Jesus goes down to a city named Nain and he's with his disciples as well as the crowds that are hovering around him. And as they come, uh, they're leaving Capernaum, they're coming into this town of Nain. And as he comes near to the entrance of the town, out comes another crowd from the town. A man had died and was being carried out. And not just any man, this was the only son of a woman. And not just a son of a woman, this was the son of a woman that had been widowed. Her husband had died at some point before. This widowed woman was had lost her only son. She'd lost her husband now, now she'd lost her only son. Imagine the pain of this woman. Imagine the grief of this woman. Imagine how alone she must have felt. And everything that she had known and loved as it relates to her family was gone. And she wept likely loudly. And behind her is this other crowd. And so here you have this strange occurrence. You have two crowds coming together. One crowd coming in, one crowd coming out. On the one hand, you have this the contrast of the Jesus crowd. They've just seen Jesus uh, heal this servant. 
they're enjoying Jesus, the one that gives life to the dead and, you know, these kinds of things, his teaching of the truth. I'm sure there was some lever of laughter, of happiness, having seen what they just have experienced. They're coming into the city. In my mind, I'm imagining Jesus sort of talking to people, walking into the city of Nain to when they look over in this crowd, Jesus looks over and his face goes with a face of joy to pain when they see this other crowd coming out. As they approach the city gate, this other crowd is the exact opposite, a crowd full of pain, full of grief, full of sadness and death. Just imagine the contrast in this moment. How will Jesus respond? We get a good picture. Remember, we're trying to get a picture of the real Jesus here. Again, in my mind, I see Jesus' face sort of changing from lightness to heaviness. And I get that from verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, don't we... The one that just days ago said, blessed are those who weep. Now he's saying, don't weep. Why? Verse 13 tells us, because he had compassion on her. He comes up to her, he touches the death of the casket. The bear stood still, And just like that centurion said, he just spoke a word. And up came the dead and had life. And he spoke. And I love what comes next. And it says, and Jesus gave him to his mother. What was that moment like? I can only imagine through his mother's tears, they're now turned to what? Laughter. (laughs) Blessed are those who weep. They will laugh. Here it is. Pictured for us in full view. People respond to this and say that it's true. That surely God has visited us. A great prophet is among us. And of course he is. Now perhaps I'm reading too much into the text. But it seems that Jesus just couldn't help himself but do this. It just seemed as though it was just the natural first gut reaction of Jesus to see this woman grieving, this crowd around him grieving. And Jesus so full of compassion, he had to resurrect the dead. So full of compassion. Don't weep. And so, not only do we learn what it is to have faith in Christ when people are slipping away, we learn that the one in whom we are to have faith in, he sees our grief. He sees our grief. You say, well, Nathan, this is just one instance. Well, friend, that's true. But look at passages like Hebrews 4.13 that says, No creature is hidden from his sight. Proverbs 15.3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place. Matthew 28.20, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so while we can't see him, he sees us by the power of his spirit. And so, beloved, as Jesus was on earth, so he is in heaven having compassion on us in our grief. And again, what does it say when the Lord saw her grief? He had compassion. Beloved, God sees. And when we go through trials and tribulations that make us disillusioned, Jesus will come to us and he will have compassion on us. Yet again, uh, we we don't have a promise that Jesus will do this uh, for all of us to resurrect the dead. 
in the now. But remember, if we are in Christ and those we love are in Christ, we can be sure that either they will be healed or they will be healed. They will have life or they will have life. Ours is the victory in Christ. He has come. He has defeated sin and death in the cross and in the resurrection. And so while while weeping may tarry for the night, right, what happens? Joy comes in the morning. That's the hope that we have when we trust in Jesus like the centurion does. These, again, are previews. And we see that God sees our grief. He has compassion on us when we're grieving. And he responds in that compassion. And Paul looks to that day. The Apostle Paul later looks to that day when we will, we sang about it a while ago, we will have that resurrection and we will see those bodies raised and we will be with them forever. Right? Paul says to the Thessalonian church, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that is, those who are dead, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. How fun is it that I get to do that now? I encourage you in Christ. Those of you that have lost loved ones in Christ, that text is true of your loved ones. When I die and you're around, Crying. Don't cry too long because I'm raising up. And I'm going to raise before you, this text says. So I love this. Is the unique thing about Christian funerals. When you stand over the dead at Christian funerals, we can say something that nobody else on planet Earth can say. God's not finished with that body. He's going to make it right because that's what he's like. Isn't that what he said in Genesis 1? Right? He created, he speaks, and says, it is good. It is good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. He will make it good in the end. So let that be an encouragement to us all. That while we may weep, tomorrow we will laugh. We are the blessed ones, even in our suffering. We do not hope in this world. We hope in the world to come. So again, let this be an encouragement to you. Jesus sees. He sees. And in our weeping, the Lord Jesus, He has compassion on us. That's what He's like. He has not ceased being the Jesus that we read in Scripture. He didn't stop being that Jesus. Even more, Philippians 2 says even more, therefore God has highly exalted Him. And He's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, praying for us. Go read Romans 8, that's what it says. So He has compassion on us and He pleads for us in prayer when we're grieving. He sends His Spirit to comfort us. He sends His people, which are the hands and feet of Jesus, to comfort us in our loss, in our pain, in our grief. And soon enough, that compassion will result in the exact same thing that it did the widow's son. We in Christ will rise from the dead and we will be with the others who are in Christ forever. And never again will we have to weep because the one of whom we have faith in is the resurrection and the life. And his kingdom is bringing in a world where there will be no more weeping and no more death because Christ has defeated it in the gospel. Blessed are the poor. Theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who weep. They will laugh. Blessed are those who suffer. Your reward is great. This is Jesus. And this is the hope that we have in Jesus. He marvels. He has compassion. And because he does, we can have hope.
All of us can have hope. And so I speak to you, friend, those sirens that go by us now, they may be ringing for you by this afternoon. Let's not forget, friends, that the son of this widow died a premature death. I'm sure that that man had no idea that he would die that soon. I'm sure he had plans for the rest of his life. Maybe even thought like someday that he'll sort of get right with Jesus later in his life. He didn't have that opportunity. Well, he did later in his second life, as it were. And so might I plead with you, friend, if you're waiting to kind of put off following Jesus, to do it now. Be reconciled to him now. God's word tells us very clearly, we do not have the promise of tomorrow. So do not plead, friend, your own worthiness on the day that you die and have to face God. Hebrews 9, 6 makes it clear. We die and we face judgment. Don't be looking to plead your own works. Lean into the fact that you are unworthy, that you have nothing to offer him, and plead the grace of the Lord Jesus to speak a word and to save you. Receive his grace and forgiveness. Be reconciled to him and then live a new life. Be born again to a new and a living hope, a greater love than this world has to offer. Live for a greater, a greater kingdom. If you want to do that, you come talk to me, talk to the one that brought you. But for those of us that have already done that, that have already placed our faith in Christ, we have that faith of the centurion. I leave you with a pleading centurion and a grieving widow. These are our forerunners, our examples. Believe as the centurion did amidst his apparent loss. Believe, trust, have faith that Jesus sees us as he saw the widow. Believe that he does, that he can, that he will have compassion on you and those he loves. Because it is he, it is he that we worship, he that we love. And and I believe that that same Jesus who couldn't help himself but have compassion on that grieving widow. So in the same way, when we plead his grace, he has marvel in our faith. And has compassion on us. Because again, as he was on earth, so he is in heaven. He has not ceased being the Jesus that we read about here. And so, beloved, hold fast to him. Believe him. Trust him. Cultivate a life with him now. So that when pain, grief, suffering comes, you'll be able to follow him then. And enjoy him forever. And lastly, beloved, not only repent, believe, have faith in him, but lastly, hope in heaven. Hope in heaven. A day is going to come and again, that widow's son will mark us all and we will all laugh and there will be no more tears, no more suffering, no more difficulty, no more pain. That day is coming as sure as that person sitting next to you. Trust him. Like that centurion. No, he's on his way. But we're unworthy to have him come into our home. But he's going to come and we can trust him for grace to cause us to be healed and restored of our sin. Let's trust him by our praying to him now. Jesus, thank you that you are compassionate. Thank you that you are, you even marvel. We praise you, Jesus, that you're like that. And Lord, some of us here are calling to mind loved ones that we've lost. 
Maybe some of us are calling to mind our own deaths. Maybe some of us are calling to mind, Lord, even the death, the pain of the world, planes being shot down, the like. Death is painful. But what joy do we have that the one we pray to has overcome it? And he did not stay. You did not stay, Jesus. Apart from that, you entered into it and you overcame it. So we have hope in you, Jesus. We don't have hope in ourselves. We have hope in you. And we thank you, God, that you're like this. That you have compassion for us as we grieve. We thank you that you give us hope in that grieving. And so, God, I pray for myself, I pray for this church that we would dig down deep and build our lives on the rock of Christ so as life comes to sweep us by, we stand up because we love you. Because you first loved us and you promised us that we will have eternal life with you. So may we trust that and find hope in that just as that widow did. May we laugh. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.